Welcome everybody back to yet another episode of Work Stoppage. We're here with the 14th episode. I'm John as always, and I'm joined by my co-host Lena. Hello. And we have a few follow-ups for you like we usually do before we get into the meat and potatoes part of the episode. And just at the top, we wanted to mention that there has been some news out about the officers that were involved in Breonna Taylor's death. Uh, some, uh, you know, very sad news. It seems like, as like you were telling me off mic, Lena, as close to a zero charges as could be reasonably levied against these, or not reasonably, but as could be levied against these officers were, yeah. and it seems like only one of them is even going to have to answer for anything in right. court and at all. The, and the one charge that exists is for endangering the neighbors. Wow. So it doesn't even have anything directly to do with Brianna, and it's also probably a very beatable charge. You know what I mean? Like they didn't give this guy something that's actually going to stick. Yeah. I think that, uh, one of the critiques that I saw like immediately was that of if they endangered the neighbors, how are they not endangering the woman that they killed? Yeah. Like, and and so I, and, and so I, I'm pretty sure we're going to see, uh, uh, a burning police precinct to, tonight, you know. Um, well, tonight being the Wednesday, the the twenty third. Um, so I guess uh, <laughs> if if this if you are listening to this uh, on Thursday, you might already know. Yeah, let us know if if we were right about this. But I hope there is a burning police precinct over this. You know, it's like every time we get news about how like things are not really improving in this country, I think it's only justified that we go out and, you know, really send a message that like, we're not going to stand for this because it's easy to get discouraged. It's like, Oh, we burned down a few police precincts, you know, the Chaz kind of happened and then it, it was no more after a little while. Like that's kind of it game over. We lost. And it's like, that's absolutely not it. These issues aren't going away and the political tension that comes with them is not going away. So like, you know, in Minecraft, go ahead and burn down that police precinct. Like, let it out. It's politically productive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but in the a follow-up that is actually something that we've covered before, um, we are going to move to Minneapolis, which is one of the uh, many places that we've covered a lot recently. And we're going to talk about the Spy House coffee workers and how they, after facing union busting in their workplace, are in the process or they did a 24 hour strike on uh, last Saturday. Yes. So it looks like every employee at all locations uh, of Spy House Coffee, which they have five locations in Minneapolis and one in St. Paul, uh, they all went on strike for 24 hours uh, on Saturday. And the union said that employees had been facing unclear mask policies, lack of enforcement of social distancing, lack of proper cleaning supplies, and table arrangements that don't allow for social distancing. And a uh, a banner from the union stated, we are standing up for safety and the safety of our customers. And the union added that it has filed a motion after a spy house employee was allegedly fired for supporting the cause. Um, And I was seeing some stuff on Twitter. I don't know if this is the same employee, but uh, a lot of the... Um, spy house employees were uh, chanting in solidarity together in support of a, actually a manager who got fired for voicing support for the union. And the, um, the CEO of this company uh, has been consistently uh, doing everything that he can to, to block the union organization effort. Let me just find his name. Christian Johnson. So yeah, the owner Christian Johnson has been doing everything that he can to fight any kind of organized, uh, labor movement happening here at all. And, and as, and as usual with the way that these episodes go is we're going to hear more about how with a lot of different actions have been postponed, um, just by union busting or even, uh, the NLRB just basically not allowing, uh, action to happen, uh, unions to form, uh, and we'll we'll hear a little bit more about that um, in a later piece, right? But yeah, solidarity with these with these workers. I actually know um, I have some friends who are in the area, and and um, it it's great to see uh, all of these actions going on in Minneapolis. Yeah, because I mean, there's a huge a huge surge in labor activity in Minneapolis. 
Um, especially, I, I don't know how much it necessarily has to do with the George Floyd protests and uh, riots and demonstrations in the street, but it does seem like the working class in Minneapolis is significantly bolder um, and, and more willing to stand up for their rights than the working class in a lot of other American cities, at least at this moment, because mm-hmm. uh, even listed in this article, it says a handful of Minnesota breweries and distilleries have seen employees unionize in recent months, including Fair State, Lawless, Stillheart, Surly, and Tattersall. That's five. And, you know, before Anchor Brewing uh, unionized, what, like last year, earlier this year, there were basically no unionized craft breweries or distilleries in the U.S. whatsoever. Yeah. And I think it has a lot to do with COVID, but I also think it has a lot to do with the the evolving class consciousness of, of all of the people and workers in uh, these um Places that have been put more into turmoil because, right. I mean, the agitation is there. And, I mean, everybody – it's not that hard to get educated. And so what are they doing? They're organizing. I mean, that's that's what's happening. Um, and honestly, I'm I'm very happy to see it. And it's sad that it has taken so many – so much, like, terrible, terrible um, – like, a, it's, it's terrible that it's caused because of a pandemic and, and all of this. And I wish that it was – uh, that we had had this sort of momentum before, but I'm I'm still you know happy to have the momentum as it is. Absolutely, and shouts out to the Unite Here um, organizers and and union leaders who seem to be doing a really really good job. They keep popping up in stories uh, about people unionizing, especially in the Twin Cities area, and um, it just seems like they're they're you know really living up to their espoused uh, values as a union. Yeah, which is awesome. Um, I think that we actually get to move on and wrap up a strike that we've been covering over a couple episodes, which is the U of M strike, uh, the grad students, also known as GEO, um, and the um, the resident assistants. Mm-hmm. The RAs. The RAs that were um, striking in solidarity, but also for their own uh, benefits, and they, uh, the RAs also striking without a union. Um, so... You'll remember that we talked about how there was a unfair labor practice uh, filed against them, though I think that maybe, I mean, that did happen, though. I think that the real thing that happened was that there was a, the university sought a court injunction uh, and okay. temporary restraining order to get the graduate students to resume teaching. Um, this basically was a legal way of fining the people for striking. If if they were to continue striking, every single person, I I think that it says that the individual participants could be fined $250 a day for continuing to strike. Holy shit. That's wild. And so they they moved to concessions, um, which... Yeah, looking over this list of, of notes that you've prepared here, it really looks like the people who were striking ended up not getting anything close to what their initial demands were yeah no it what it it looks like what they got was two meetings to discuss safety every single term which i'm guessing is a semester um unless it's like a like a quarter or something like that but um they get meetings to discuss safety which is not what they asked for they asked for definitive like action on safety measures and then also when it came to the michigan ambassador program which is basically how they keep police on the campus that was just that they agreed to have one meeting about it or, or, or quote-unquote talks as if as as if anything at all can can come from that yeah, and you know nothing is is going to come from that. And I, I see here that like the RAs were asking for hazard pay, and they were denied that. And instead, they're going to get a, a one time payment of two hundred dollars, but not in money in something called blue bucks. What the hell is I'm a blue gu- buck? I'm I'm guessing. So it, the article doesn't go into it, but I'm guessing it's just company script. Um, yeah, campus currency is what uh, the university website is telling me. So that's awful. Use them for on-campus dining, books, and fan gear. So literally, one thing that is actually going to help anybody—they can buy food yeah. with it. I was, yeah, I was thinking about what two hundred dollars in food. Where like these universities, it's not 
non-profit food those those like the cafeteria is not a non-profit organization where they're like designed around keeping the price of food low i know I, it's a business opportunity there's somebody making a bunch of money off of that whether it's the i don't know what this situation is at u of m but it could be the university it could be some contractor that they brought in yeah so and i guess the there as if we talk about like good things that happened uh there was an extension of age ranges of children that qualified for health care or for child care assistance and also okay. an increase in child care funding but it doesn't it didn't say exactly what it was and then also for the ra's um, when it came to their PPE demands, they got um, 50 masks every 45 days, basically of the re- the or the um, disposable kind, and then they also got four reusable masks and a face shield, basically. Uh, which is, I mean, like that's not nothing. No, it's, I mean I, it's I'd pretty the, good. Yeah, that, I'd say they gave in to the PPE demands. So we, I think that that is that is a fair well, thing to say that's the easy one to give into right because it's not that expensive it's an expense that theoretically as the need for them goes away you won't have to provide as much anymore and it's like that's the easy token for them to be like look we gave you this now you know kowtow to the rest of our demands uh, and and let us just give you vague promises in place of concrete change. You know, we gave you the masks, we gave you the you know gloves and hand sanitizer or whatever. So yeah. now instead of meeting your demands on other things, we're going to schedule meetings and and talks to talk about things. While in the meantime, you get back to work and relinquish your biggest bargaining chip in actually uh, achieving those things. Yeah, uh, and and that's and that I mean that is more of a reference to the graduate students who had the legal the legal what do you call it threats yeah yeah the legal threats against them um, because yeah and this is especially an issue for the graduate students just because of the um, the reason why it was cited that they went through this court injunction was because they were going against their contract, which we mentioned last time, this was basically because they were striking and they have a no strike clause. And so, and so they were just threatened because they had their, their rights were taken out of the contract and they struck anyway. And I mean, I guess there were legal repercussions that would have basically uh, sucked all the money out of the, the geo union. Well, it's interesting that the pressure that they had to face and that eventually um, made them accept less than what they were originally asking for came from the fact that they weren't allowed to strike, but they wouldn't have achieved anything if they hadn't striked in the first place. So it's kind of like, in a way, the university is saying, like, just please don't do it again. Please, please, please don't strike anymore. Uh, I I would say it's a little bit more than a please. It's more of a... Like they, they're holding up a gun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, but that's the thing is like, they're a bit desperate, right? Like the strike mm-hmm. worked to some degree. Uh, and even though there was a no strike clause in their contract and I think that's amazing. And I, you know, I'm not a legal expert. I'm especially not like a, a labor law expert or anything, but, uh, it makes me wonder if there's not some way to set a precedent moving forward or inch these kind of unions closer to a contract agreement that does not have a no strike clause. Yeah. And it, it's important to remember that the RAs didn't didn't have a union, and that they basically created like a committee, which they said wasn't a union, and somehow they've managed to actually um, get pretty meaningful change uh, without a union. And I and I I would say that you ba- they basically is a union. They've got a committee of people helping them make decisions and and right. helping them improve uh, work can conditions i think the reason why they wouldn't call it a union is because there's probably not a huge fund uh if they were to go on strike again or or there's not certain um there's no dues that are designed to um like provide more organizational uh, momentum yeah well i mean that's the thing i think a lot of people are finding their opportunity to strike or to have a voice in a labor movement even if it's just a local one and a lot of them, you know, they're not necessarily prepared for that. Um, union uh, membership has constantly been on the decline for like decades in the United States. Um, and so it's very cool to see that like in a pinch, people really don't have that much trouble banding together and, and figuring this kind of stuff out, even if there's not a formal organization 
to lend their kind of institutional weight and, and legitimacy to them. And that's, I mean, that's encouraging to me. Um, really, you know, every time I read one of these stories, there's, there's a lot of parts that can like easily be discouraging. And I'm always trying to seek out like what, what's encouraging and, and what can be built upon in these kind of, uh, movements. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's definitely something that we need to keep doing, looking at the, the benefits of these actions, even though, um, there are concessions made, I mean, it's kind of like the reason why we have a meme review. It's some of this stuff is dark. We need, but we <laughs> so we need to we need to keep it light, and we need to look at the 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 better parts of what we're doing. That's right. Well, uh, speaking of keeping it light, I want to move on to uh, our international news segment, where <laughs> I have something that I hadn't really taken a gander at much before, and that is politics in Thailand. You were telling me about this, and it's, it seems really interesting because this is not a strike. It's kind of more of a threat of a strike, right? Yeah, so there have been protests uh, kind of rippling through Thailand recently. Uh, there was a really, really big one this last weekend in response to essentially financial overreach and corruption of the monarchy and of the ruling class more broadly in Thailand. So it was revealed... Um, I'm sorry. Uh, it's it's well known in Thailand that the, the, the king... Um, Ha, is the largest shareholder in the biggest bank in the country. And uh, also the the ruling party right now has a lot of close ties to the monarchy because Thailand is a constitutional monarchy. They have been for about 80-something years, close to 90, I believe. And um, it seems like citizens are really worried with the amount of corruption and overreach that's happening right now that their country could be sliding from a constitutional monarchy back into an absolute monarchy. And uh, it's very, very difficult for activists in the country to organize and to publicize their opinions because Thailand has one of the strictest uh, called, I think it's called Les Majestés uh, laws in the world, which is essentially a law about insulting the monarch. Section 112 of their criminal code says it is who's illegal a total to, loser, by the way. Yeah, who's a total fucking <laughs> idiot. Uh, but in Thailand, it is illegal to defame, insult, or threaten the king, queen, heir apparent, heir presumptive, or regent. And modern Thai lay of majesté law has been on the statute book since 1908. Insult was criminalized and lay of majesté was made a crime against national security in 1957. The punishment last strengthened in 1976. And the only constitutional monarchy to do so since World War II is three to 15 years of imprisonment per count and has been described as the world's harshest les majesté law um, and pro- possibly the strictest criminal defamation law anywhere. So if you get caught insulting the monarchy or the aristocracy, really, uh, you can be sentenced to up to 15 years in jail. And it's very interesting because I've been watching a lot of videos about Thai activists and kind of the struggle that they've been undergoing. And a lot of them are just used to getting arrested. They get arrested. They get thrown in jail. Uh, it lasts X amount of time. You know, sometimes it can be these very long sentences. Sometimes it's much shorter. Um, and it's kind of interesting because it's all a symptom of a, of a broader political tension in Thailand that's been bubbling up for a long time. And uh, I haven't read into it enough to know all the names of all the players, but it seems like there's kind of a – it's color-coded. There's a, there's like a red shirt movement, which is more populist uh, and is comprised mostly of like the lower and the working classes. Uh, it's not explicitly socialist. Um, they, they're, they're looking for liberal reforms and kind of liberal accountability. But the what's opposite to that is a, a sort of quote-unquote democratic party that is like the yellow shirts and they represent the interests of mostly the upper classes and the ruling classes. And they've been in this kind of back and forth for decades in the country trying to figure out the way to get the country, you know, ruled the way that they want to. And there's been a lot of like pressure back and forth. Um, you know, they, they elected a leader from kind of like the red shirt side and then he was exiled and found guilty later after the yellow shirt side kind of resumed power. And then the red shirt side had a surge in popularity and his youngest sister was elected leader of the country, um, in a parliament. I don't know what it's called. A prime minister, I think, um, of parliament. And then the red shirts or the yellow shirts were like, no. And they, they pushed her out of power. And then there was a military coup in 2014 where a military leader established a junta. And there's like, there's so much fucking turmoil 
in Thailand over the last several decades. Uh, and so right now, activists in Thailand, this brings it all the way back around to labor, activists in Thailand are suggesting or seem to be suggesting that if the demands of these protests are not met, the country should engage in a general strike, which I, you know, as somebody who's just getting used to having an opinion on what's going on in Thailand as of like the last couple of days, uh, it seems like a good idea and I support it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that what they're saying is that it's been very difficult to get these changes that they want. And so in order to actually make real change, they're willing to go all the way to having all of the workers in the country, or at least a a grand majority of the workers in the country stop working in protest. And as we know, general strikes are, are generally pretty effective. Yeah. Well, and it's one of the only things I think at this point that could challenge the military's power because since the coup in 2014, the military and the police in the country have been saying that they're trying to restore the system in Thailand, but they really haven't given any concessions in terms of like potentially moving out of power or admitting that their form of rule has been unpopular and has led to like greater distress within the country. Um, so I don't, again, I don't know all the details about this. I'm just kind of, uh, learning about it, but it seems like there's a group called the Tamasat group. I hope I'm saying that correctly. They're the ones who called for a general strike on October 14th and urged supporters to show solidarity by not standing during the Royal Anthem, badass, and displaying white ribbons. They're also calling for a boycott of Siam Commercial Bank PCL in which the King is the majority shareholder. Uh, and they, last month they listed 10 demands, including a call for revival the country's strict les majesté laws that criminalize insults of senior members of the royal family and the demonstrators challenges to the monarch confront it says here the demonstrators challenges to the monarch confront deeply entrenched taboos in thailand where openly criticizing the royals can lead to long jail sentences so it's just a it's a very hairy situation that until recently i literally knew nothing about and i thought that probably some of our listeners also are not aware of what the political situation is like in thailand and uh, just something that i wanted to bring to everybody's attention yeah, yeah. And I I honestly had no idea about this before you brought it to my attention as well. So, I'm definitely thanking you for that one. Um and if anybody else has really great suggestions like this for things that we should cover, always we got actually I do a little announcement in the middle of the episode, but we did start <laughs> up a Discord. If you uh go to our Patreon um at patreon.com/workstoppage, you can get uh the link to join our Discord there. Um, moving on from the Thailand, uh, story, is it, we, is it a good time to do that? Yeah, Are we going to move to, move to the, um, some German workers who have been conduct or are they're either conducting or they plan to conduct. I think that, uh, in here, it, I think it kind of isn't entirely clear, but they're conducting warning strikes. And I, well, and that's, I, that's I kind of the question. What, what, is, what is a warning strike exactly? Is that like a strike? Is it a threat of a strike? It's kind of like a, a baby strike. You do like a 50% work slowdown and you're like, this is only going to get worse if you don't listen to us. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of like the, um, the implication like, yeah, the implication that it will get worse if you do not actually, uh, give in to these demands, which this is actually, uh, this is going to affect about 2.3 million public sector workers. This is actually, I mean, about, um, I have a list here of, uh, like local authorities, daycare center workers, um, hospital workers, and, and many different like public institutions are basically, uh, trying to strike against pay freezes and, and one of the quotes in the in the article that we had was clapping is not enough. We want to be paid decently. And I think <laughs> this is something that that if a lot of people were saying back when uh, COVID, when we were all like in quarantine and everybody is out their window clapping for all of the essential workers or are putting their <laughs> lives on the line. And what it, we always said, like, don't don't clap. Pay us. Yeah, like, don't get. Let's give it up for the people who are risking their lives. All right, hey, woo! And then that's like supposed to be enough, you know. And it's like you said, like this is the German Civil Service Federation. Like this is two point three million public sector employees. Like this is, 
this is one two hundredth of the entire population of the United States who is negotiating for for better pay increases. And and it seems like yes, it does include police officers, which is unfortunate. But it also includes tons of other civil service workers because Germany has a robust, you know, social safety net system. So this is also like childcare workers and nurses and people who provide other like mm-hmm. actually essential services to the public. Um, right. And they they really don't want that much, right? They're only asking for almost a 5% wage increase, an extra yes. 150 euros a month. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Then um, also there's some additional uh, compensation around internship fees that uh, they're trying to get. And basically the whole thing just is wrapped up in like the fact that they don't want pay freezes. Why are we getting pay freezes in the middle of a pandemic? When yeah. I mean, is that that's just austerity? And and the idea that we can accept austerity as some sort of option is ridiculous. And I'm really glad that these uh, public sector workers are standing up for their rights. And, and actually, they have a they have a lot of public support too. There was a survey that went around that said that 63 percent of the public actually supported these strikes. So that's pretty good. I, I'd say that there's a good chance that they're going to get um, at least a good portion of what they're asking for. Let's hope they get that 4.8% wage increase. I know that I also read in there that some people say that's not enough. I agree that's not enough. Um, but that is basically what the uh, the union administration is, is saying the right. demands are. Well, that's kind of like the fight for 15 thing here in the United States. Like in many, many places in the United States, $15 an hour is still not going to cut it. You know, maybe if you're single and you live by yourself with some roommates or something, but like for the vast majority of the working class, especially anybody who has kids, like if you want to raise a family, $15 an hour is simply not going to cut it in New York City, Chicago, LA, Houston, you know, even some smaller cities. So it's like... It, it, I always have like a, a, a double minded kind of reaction to this kind of thing where I'm like, I'm really glad this is happening. I hope this works. And there's another part of my brain just on fire screaming, like it doesn't go far enough, make a bigger ask. Like it should be fight for 25 right now. Like the German public sector workers should be able to ask for a 15% increase, um, instead of a 5% one. But, um, you know, uh, I just don't want, I don't want to run, I don't want to run into the area of like poo pooing the actual worker struggles that are happening in front of me. So, you know, lots of support to, to these workers in Germany who are asking for their pay increase, except for the cops. I don't think they should be in the union. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, still, um, our last story in kind of international news, which does reach all the way to the United States. Uh, and this is going to be a really good transition um, back to some of our U.S. stories after we're done with this. But basically, mm-hmm. there is an urge to strike over climate conditions, but specifically urging kids to go out and strike for better um, standards against climate change. Uh, on this Friday, we're going to see uh, a bunch of actions. I think that we saw previously last year uh, about six million people over across the world protesting in in this kind of way, um, mostly because the Paris Climate Accord is just n- not enough. And then also, like here in the United States, we are not even in the Paris Climate Accord. No, yeah, uh, we bowed out of that. We're like, hey, we're not gonna honor the Kyoto Agreement. We're not gonna fucking do anything to prevent the impending climate catastrophe at all. Yeah. Uh, and so if you know, I think that this is actually going to be a, a good story to spread because this is kind of almost like in, in the general strike territory where it is not saying a union is going to strike. What they're saying is that like, we need people to go into the streets this Friday and, and regardless of whether or not they're working to actually demand these demand changes. Cause, uh, one of the pieces in here is talking about the United or the uh yeah the United Kingdom where they're tr- originally Theresa May had uh committed to uh-huh. getting uh to phase out diesel and petrol vehicles uh by 2035 uh or 2040 I think is when she did it and then um 
Boris Johnson is now being pressured to bring that uh, date down to 2030. So 10 years in there to, to get rid of any sort of um, oil-based uh, vehicles. So <laughs> I just don't think that the UK is going to be capable of committing to that. You know what I mean? Um, no. But I, with, with the right kind of pressure, they could be. And that's what I think is really smart about this, right? Is it's like it's very difficult to get adults to go on strike because they're going on strike from their jobs and you have to convince them that the net benefit to them of the possible unionization effort or whatever they're striking for is worth more to them than the paycheck that they're going to receive. But like kids don't get paid to be in school, <laughs> you know, and kids don't fucking want No. And they don't want to be in school anyway. It's like, if I was a school age kid, like if I was like 15 or whatever, and I saw something on the internet that was like, Hey, we're trying to get students to walk out of school in protest. Like there'd be a part of me that'd be like, Oh, what's the protest about? Oh, I'm interested in that. But then there's also part of me that's like, yeah, fuck school. I don't want to be here anyway. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's so, what I was thinking about that too. It's like, it's actually, I think it's a pretty good, um, solution. Like when we're already seeing a good reason to leave schools because of COVID, like why not have another reason, which is to say that we are demanding climate action. Absolutely. Well, that's the thing, like with this pandemic, with the social unrest, with the election season, with everything that's happening, that's compounding all of these political issues in the United States, the ruling class and the institutional leaders are not going to miss a beat taking every single one of these things and lumping them all together and figuring out factors that they can use to their advantage on multiple fronts to make more money. And as the working class and as the people who should be standing in opposition to those people... It's, you know, it can feel cheap to be like, oh, you know, well, there's already so much going on. Do we really need to tack another political issue onto this? But I think that doing that and and standing for multiple things at the same time is really what builds that kind of political energy in the United States and lets people know that they can get shit done. Because it's easy to think that like this is the height of activism right now in the United States. But the fallout from all of this stuff is only going to continue to unfold. And the activism in response to it is only going to continue to get more intense. So the past I really, five I, years have been the hottest years on record. I mean, like the, there's yeah. there is a very clear reason to be acting on this. There's there, there's no like I I'd say that like if we look at all of the issues around the world, like sure we're in a pandemic, but also like this is literally whether or not our planet survives. I mean, if anything, this is a principal contradiction in our society. Well, yeah, because that's the issue is it's like you can talk all you want about how many fucking COVID fatalities and like how many mismanagement and like even even like really, you know, not that those aren't serious, but even like truly like like earth shakingly serious stuff like the fact that the United States is actively running a genocide at the border and running concentration camps like even that just number numbers wise pales in comparison to how many people are going to die over the next few decades based on climate catastrophe if we don't fucking do anything about it yeah look at the fires the the storms and yeah. everything yeah and per capita the united states is far and away the greatest contributor to anthropogenic climate change like without a doubt for considering the number of people we have and the amount of damage that we do we do more damage than anybody else in the world by a huge margin yeah uh, and and i think that uh, it's going to be really good to see what actions actually come out of this on Friday. I know that it that the kids especially are being urged to go into the streets if they can. Uh, you know, per, the proverbial streets. I mean, not if right. it's un, if it's unsafe because it is a, about um whether or not it's safe for the kids to do that, but also um allowing them to go into some of their online settings and um do their actions there and to make sure that that the kids feel like they have the ability to do activism in all of the different spaces in their life. Well, that's what's important too, because it's like, you know, the kids who are in school right now are going to be the adults who have to deal with the fallout of all of these problems that are happening. Like by the time all of this shit truly plays out, like I'm almost 30 right now, I'm going to be in my 40s or 50s by the time we see like all of the political fallout from what's been happening over the last few years, especially this year. And it's like, these kids are not, they're going to be young adults and they're going to need to have the tools to like stand up and band together and like say when enough is enough. And, uh, I, it's really cool that there are opportunities like this, even in the midst of all this terrible shit for them to learn that because it's like, 
you know, growing up in the, in the sheltered public school system that like, you know, I grew up in, it's like, I never learned how to put my foot down and stage a protest or, or be a part of a political moment or anything. That stuff all seemed so distant and so far away. Yeah. Well, and that, and I do think that that's purposeful to basically teach kids that you don't protest to, to like, not it's like, if, if we were, like trained in protesting as children we would be doing a lot more now like we would be (laughs) striking a lot more now we would have it literally ingrained in our education and it should be in our education we should actually be taught to fight for these very important things like making sure our planet isn't actively being killed well, that's the thing. Like growing up, you see all of these fucking posters and stuff in public schools and it's like, stand up for what's right, even if you're standing alone. And it's like, well, yeah, stand up for what's right. But if, like, if you're standing alone, maybe get some people to stand with you. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to be this act of individual defiance. We're always kind of taught like there is justice in the world, but you have to fight for your own justice and you can't fight for anybody else's. Like that's the American ethos of justice and it's just so perverse and it doesn't get anybody anywhere uh it either turns you into maybe a very just person but a horribly ineffective one or just a fucking monster you know yeah yeah i mean individualism is i mean i might have even used this phrase before but individualism is a scourge that needs to be eradicated from our culture i mean like i don't have a problem with the abstract idea of individualism but like political individual like individualism as a political motive is just fucking hot garbage it's just ridiculous that's definitely what i was alluding to um but i mean now that we're kind of back in the realm of talking about the united states i think that we can move on to talking about uh a union that's been doing that that did some strike breaking basically in yeah. Illinois. So this article that you shared with me is is very long and uh I was looking over there's just so much good information in here but it seems like uh beginning Friday the Illinois Nurses Association shut down the strike of 800 nurses and forced them back to work without a contract uh after meeting with the UIH administrators Thursday night. This left 4,000 striking service workers who are members of the Service Employees International Union isolated on the picket lines at the UIC hospital, part of the UIH system, and the local 73 also kept 25,000 of its members working throughout the strike, isolating the membership from within. And all of this uh, information that we have in here is coming directly from an article uh, from the World Socialist website published by the International Committee of the Fourth International. Um, so this is a Trotskyist uh, newspaper, and it does seem like they're they're doing pretty goddamn good labor reporting because this is one of the most robust uh, articles about labor that I have seen since we started the show. Yeah, um, one of the things that they point out is uh, they went back to work with none of their demands met. Like, not only without a contract, but with zero of their demands met. And and it's strange to see why, and, and I, I pointed this out in our notes towards the bottom, because there's kind of this equating of the union being uh, the union administration, the SEIU. Now, right. I always want to remind people that the union is actually the workers. Those 800 people who were forced back into the workplace, even though their demands hadn't been met. Uh, that is the union. I mean, the union administration is the SEIU. And so right. I, I, would, I would really like it if, if we, that's probably maybe my only critique on, on this, but it's, it's so common that that misconception is, is espoused. Right. Well, the idea with a union is that like, it's a body that directly reflects the will of the workers. Right. And if you have, a union leadership that no longer is in keeping with the actual will of the rank and file membership of the union, then what you have there is no longer a representation of the will of the workers, but instead a, a corrupted union apparatus or, or a, or a perverted kind of union apparatus. Yeah. Yeah. And also I think, was this the, I think this is where we are seeing the, basically these workers are paid under minimum wage in the area so basically they're trying to get a one of their demands was a $15 minimum wage because right. in in the Chicago area where where they are there's a $14 minimum wage but these workers aren't even paid that because of a loophole that qualifies them as state workers 
Right. Which is insane to me. Cause it's like, even if I'm a state worker and I work directly for the state of Illinois or whatever, like if I live in the city of Chicago, if I'm close enough to a Chicago hospital that I can work there, I need the cost of living. You know, I need a payment that can cover the cost of living in the Chicago Metro area and not like, you know, way out in like rural Western Illinois. Yeah. And there, there was also with some interviews with workers, there was, they were saying that the scabs that are being brought in are being paid t- over twice as much as them. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the workers that were, um, highlighted were being paid around $17 an hour, but they were saying that the scabs they were bringing in were being paid 40 dollars yeah. an hour and a lot of this stuff is not getting reported through any kind of conventional media in the chicago area or on the national level because it says here in the article it's like negotiations between the ina and uih administrators which include the university board comprised of millionaire and billionaire trustees are set to resume today both the ina and seiu have worked to keep their members in the dark about negotiations meanwhile the chicago corporate press including the sun times and the Tribune newspapers are blacking out the strike to prevent support for the strike from reaching the working class more broadly. And we, the, the people who wrote this article literally had to learn from uh, WBBM News Radio on Saturday that the UIC hospital was offering raises of 0, 1.5, 1.5, and 1.5% for the four-year contract term after an initial demand for a wage freeze. That so meant, Yeah, that means that year, the, this year they get zero. They, get a, they yeah. literally have a wage freeze. That means the following year they get a 1.5% percent wage increase which i doubt is even a cost of living adjustment and then for the the additional two years again 1.5 percent that is yeah wholly inadequate no well i mean if you're making 12 dollars an hour and you get a 1.5 percent wage increase you're now making 12 dollars and 18 cents an hour you know so even if you do that a few times it's still never even going to get you close to $13 an hour, never mind an actual fucking living wage in the metropolitan area yeah. of Chicago. Um, and one of the things, I mean, one of the things, I mean, we've covered so many things. Another thing that uh, they were concerned about is that they initially were get, they got a $5 per hour COVID um, hazard pay boost, though that was taken away recently, even yep. though we're still pretty much in the middle of a pandemic. Well, that's the thing that it keeps going up and like new cases every day, even though they're going down in a lot of areas are still higher than they were at the height of like, you know, everybody being off of work and and all of the actual prevention measures being in place. And, you know, companies, they just want to cut hazard payoff at any time. They're just like, oh, you know, the hazard's mostly gone. It's like one, it's definitely not. No. And then, and, and then two, it's also like, you can just, we all know that you're just making arbitrary decisions. Like my employer personally cut my hazard pay like over a month and a half ago, we stopped getting hazard pay. Like I think, yeah, cl- two months ago they they cut our hazard pay, which was only a fucking like two dollars an hour anyway. But yeah, so I mean, we I I'm definitely concerned over like the lack of reporting on this, and there are just so many huge red flags when it comes to these uh, super rich people just deciding that the workers no longer are going to be able to be on strike. It's yep. I mean, it's truly anti-solidaristic and. And I'm tired of of like these people giving a bad name to unions because we've talked about this before. Is this is the reason why people are like, oh, unions had their time and they're not good anymore. And this is just a great example <laughs> of of when they fucked up. And this is this is a fuck up. Well, it's so funny. It's like unions get like one strike and then everybody like loses faith in the concept of unions. But like tons and tons of corporations can commit straight up atrocities over and over and over again throughout the course of American history. And everybody's like, well, it's not the idea of corporations. It's just a few bad apples or whatever. Yeah. And it's yeah, like, they do treat, yeah, they treat corporations exactly like they treat police because they're yeah. basically the same. They're, they're uh, autocratic organizations. Well, and I'm not saying that like, I'm definitely saying that unions can be bad. Like any structured formal organization can be bad, just like any individual, if they so choose, can be bad. But like, you know, the this this doesn't deter me from from thinking that unions are good, but this just redoubles my conviction that if you really want to have, you know, something that serves your best interests, it needs to be a union that is composed of 
and acts in accordance with the actual material will of the people who are in the union. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so moving to, uh, Brooklyn, we're talking about a, uh, this is actually, I think maybe even another great example of this exact kind of, um, thing that we're talking about where an organization that was very like designed to be good for the community is now, being boycotted because of union busting um and you were telling me about it uh and i'm actually yeah i'll let you i'll let you take the especially the intro on this one because i think that you you do you do it justice yeah well what's interesting about this is so we're talking about a nonprofit called housing works that operates uh a secondhand store in brooklyn and originally um housing works was born from the radical AIDS activism group act up who did a lot of fantastic work. And, um, the action was part of, there's a, there's been a labor action, uh, out front of this, this, um, housing works secondhand store on September 12th and on the 19th, uh, by workers, which was met with resistance from the nonprofits leadership, uh, ever since their unionization campaign went public in summer 2019. So there's been a long-running uh, unionization campaign uh, at at this place. And during... So when COVID rolled around, uh, they had 192 pay... Or 196 paid employees that they furloughed and laid off uh, in retail and in social services and in all of the other different kind of services that they offer as a nonprofit. And as they began to slowly reopen the housing works, the, the nonprofit claims that all workers were offered their positions back, but union organizers maintain that this is not true. And also, uh, the nonprofit said that they were moving towards being 100% community powered. What now could that, that wording sounds very cool, right? That's the yeah. community powered is really cool. I love, I love that phrase. What, it, what right. do they mean by community powered? Well, that just means that when this specific location reopened on September 12th, uh, instead of paying workers and creating jobs in the area, they'll be running the store entirely through volunteers while they still make the same profits that they were before. Um, So you're saying that they cut everyone's wages to zero and said, we're still a staple in the community. Yes. On top of the fact that there's already tensions between them and the community for being something of a gentrifying force. And so the boycotters and uh, I guess they're not strikers because they were furloughed and fired, but they, the boycotters brought out Scabby the Rat, an inflatable rat used across New York City to publicly shame anti-union organizations. The workers passed out flyers to passersby uh, saying, we believe it is not fair for housing works to rely on unemployed or underemployed working people to work for free. And at least three volunteers who showed up for their shift instead stood in solidarity with the boycotting workers. So it's, it's very, very cool. Um, the article that we have here from Liberation News, who is also doing very, very good on the ground uh, uh, reporting work. I think they're affiliated with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. They said that the action resonated with the neighborhood, both longtime and newcomer residents. An outpouring of support from passersby and neighboring stores uplifted the demonstrators from the deli workers who observed the action and gave extra food to the workers to the MTA bus drivers who honked loudly in support. So it's not hard to see that people in the community really they recognize, would, yeah. Yeah, they would much rather take the side of these workers than this, you know, little parasitic kind of extension of a nonprofit that maybe once provided a really good service to the community, maybe once was a force for progressive politics in the area, but clearly uh, is no longer. Yeah, that I I was actually really surprised when you uh, told me that this was all based out of ACT UP. And, and like like the whole like their original organization that got this thrift store work like moving was like an uh, an AIDS activism yep uh, nonprofit and then where it has ended up is just terrible. Well, that's the problem with capitalism, right? Like you try to do activism work and you realize that you're short on money, so now you have to come up with uh, you know. Uh, income streams and, you know, secondhand shops and stuff like that are a good way to do it. A lot of anarchists do bookstores, you know, there's, there's a bunch of options, but 
over time, if those elements of the organization are not kept in check as being a supporting leg of what the actual focus of the organization is, they can become a way for people to just be invested in making money for themselves and becoming careerists and opportunists in that kind of structure. And so, you know, to me, it's just a, it's just an accountability issue, really. So you mentioned that uh, there was an organizing effort to create a union, and you said it started back in 2019. What? How? How in the world could something like this like takes take so long? And I understand that some union movements are are like longer than others. Though this is this is New York City, where they have a pretty large union contingent, uh, and and uh, I, I just. Like where 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 is it that we're like a year and a half past the start of this? <laughs> well, um, it seems like the workers at uh, Housing Works were very kind of optimistic about Housing Works being willing to be neutral in the unionization process, and basically just let a third party group verify that enough union members had signed cards to ratify the union and go forward with it. But the exact opposite of that happened. Housing Works has been fighting a union drive in its workforce for over a year. They began organizing the entire agency over two years ago, it turns out. So I was I was a little off the mark there. And uh, they again, they believe that uh, Housing Works would ad- agree to card check neutrality. Instead, Housing Works hired union, specifically a union busting firm called Seafarth and Shaw, refused to recognize a neutrality agreement and forced the union to file with the National Labor Relations Board in February 2020. And then throughout the pandemic, Housing Works has been leaning very heavily on their ties to people in the Trump backed NLRB to delay the union election and has at- multiple times attempted to pit new employees against long term workers. They've uh, postponed mail-in elections and then they finally like a mail-in election was set to happen on march 20th which was delayed at the last minute by a nlrb ruling halting all union elections on march 19th so they've they've pulled out all the stops to fuck these workers over and it 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 really is amazing to see this come from what is ostensibly a non-profit that simply provides much needed community services and runs some secondhand stores yeah, I think that this this story really shows why the NLRB is an outdated organization in and that we need to move directly to card check only because if yep. we don't actually like talk cuz the whole point of there being a union election is not so that there's de- democracy. You know what a democracy is? Is a card check because that already shows that there has been popular support for a union. Now, right. the an additional level of of election or democracy is actually just designed to give the corporation time to stop the union from happening it without yeah. without car, without a card check union law the nlra in my opinion doesn't do anywhere near enough i i honestly i i've been thinking i've been like being in the labor movement i've thought a lot about the nlra and i've kind of determined that it's it was just not enough. The whole the whole reason like it's considered a victory is because people were fighting for government recognition to force corporations into bargaining. But when we got it, all we got was more steps of bureaucracy to stop us from actually being able to have meaningful control over our workplace in a democratic fashion. The Absolutely. idea that there's an election is just a second election. What they've done is they've just created a second election. When we've already had one, the card check. Yeah, well, they they want to pretend like they're adding these steps and, and these like verifying organizations and all and all of this stuff, so that like your union can be viewed with the actual legitimacy of the democracy that's present in your organization. It's like that's bullshit. You're just adding steps of mediation so that you can take our democratic vote about whether or not we should have formal organized representation in our workplace and you're saying like that's illegitimate you need to take that and essentially appeal it against the company or appeal it against the state and see if you pass their criteria for legitimacy and it's like that's not fucking democracy that's still being mediated and arbitrated by the already existing ruling structure it's it's a stalling tactic it's a way to kick labor power down the road and not have to deal with it right now yeah it's 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 a milk toast reform. That's what the NLRA is. And I yeah. think that 
one of the things we need to have a, a drastic change in the NLRA for it to even be vaguely good for workers. Because at this point, I'm going to say that the NLRA is almost doing more harm. I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of it well enough, but it seems like there are certainly parts of it that are very counterproductive. Yeah. Well, with that serious note, I think we can move on to the, to, to the meme review. because This is my favorite part of the show. Not that I don't care deeply about the issues that we talk about on this show, but any excuse to metaphorically like walk into the house, kick off my shoes and open a beer. You know what? I, that's what getting to the meme review really feels like for me. Yeah. Like changing out of my work uniform, all that good shit. Yeah. So I think we're we're gonna start with um with a nice live laugh love meme and <laughs> and, and actually surprisingly a good one like at least what I kind of interpreted to be kind of a good one what this is is this is just like on a pale pink background it's got a nice little like uh like shape thing at the bottom to kind of give you this new agey feel to it <laughs> and uh and the text on it is ultra independence is a trauma response period. And and I and I and I and though I usually am I'm thinking that these things are are cringe, I think that that kind of shows that what capitalism does through isolation, it creates these ultra independents and this kind of want to go and be alone or do or act alone, and and how really that is just a like the isolation of capitalism keeping us from really acting collectively to change our work conditions. And I think that that yeah. is a surprisingly woke new age live, laugh, love meme. Well, that's the thing is it's like it's people. I think a lot of people would look at this and they'd be like, well, I'm ultra independent and I don't have any trauma, you know, nothing bad ever happened to me when I was a kid or whatever kind of like generic stereotypical idea of trauma they have, but it's like, this isn't necessarily just like one specific thing that happened to you. Like this is the enduring trauma of living in a capitalist society and living in a society where so many people have already be, been conditioned to be ultra independent that they don't care about you and they don't support you. And there's no mutually beneficial social relations between people, or there's a drastic reduce in the number of kind of symbiotic social relations that people are capable of having and then there's damage and there's fallout from that. People build up a resentment and they build up an uncomfortableness and a social alienation inside themselves. And then the only outlet for that that's offered is to be the same kind of ultra independent person. I don't need to rely on anybody. I can get everything that I need for me and I'm, I'm, I'm good by myself. And then you end up reproducing that same kind of callous, uh, you know, alienated kind of negligence to all of the fel your fellow humans around you. And then it only teaches them to do that behavior as well. So, it, you know, I, even though, you know, this, this does, it, it, I have to agree with you. It does look like kind of a woo woo spiritual kind of like bullshit new Which, age thing. If we mean. know anything about you is not your favorite. I'm allergic if to that shit. I have a very bad <laughs> and immediate response to it, but I have to admit the message of this, this meme, even though it's maybe not like as on the nose as it could be is ultimately, I think a very good point to make. Yeah. Um, Al, speaking of good points to make, uh, in, in light of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, uh, I saw this uh, screen cap of a tweet that says, if you murder a string of Supreme Court justices and then appeal your conviction back up to the Supreme Court, all the remaining judges must recuse themselves with conflict of interest. You are automatically freed. The perfect crime. No law school is brave enough to admit this. And, I, and, my, and my caption for this is, cannot confirm, but big if true. Like yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> I think in some cases it could technically work. Like if, if you would have to make it the kind of case that can be appealed up to the Supreme Court, right? So like you can't just like go in and randomly murder the Supreme court justices. You have to like, they have to die in an, in an industrial accident that has like social and political implications on legislation or the way the law is interpreted. And then and so if you're very careful about it and, and you do quite a bit of legal research, I don't think that this, what is obviously a joke tweet is really too far off the mark. I think there might be a way to get this to work. Uh, but it's one of those glitches in the legal system that requires a lot of painstaking setups 
Uh, <laughs> so I don't know how confident I would be trying it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like one, one mistake and you just end up right there at the first court in jail forever. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, speaking um, of interesting, uh, interesting thought experiments and uh, and and uh, experiments in the world of formal logic, our next one is just a headline that says Michael Farr: The problem with the U.S. economy is there are too many poor people. Um, and this being from CNBC, <laughs> wow. I can't I can't help but imagine that they mean the Galaxy worst possible brain. thing you could mean by that. But also, in a way that is not the way they mean, this is true, right? It's like how people talk about like the revolution isn't supposed to be the proletarian class suddenly being superior to the bourgeoisie. It's supposed to be the self abolition of the proletarian class. Like there's no longer a class divide because we don't need to break society up into classes anymore based on the way the economy is structured. And so after a fashion, it's like, yeah, you know, if we had a poverty alleviation program, like many socialist nations have, we could reduce the number of poor people in the United States in a very productive and helpful way. But again, this is from CNBC. So I'm not hundred percent sure that's not what they mean. (laughs) I think there's a pretty good reason why it's just a screen cap instead of being an actual (laughs) article that we're covering. Yeah, Um, absolutely. (laughs) uh, All right. So I'm just going to click on this last one. Oh, Oh shoot. I, I didn't, I didn't pay my dues, John. Did you pay your Antifa dues? Because this this meme says uh, it, it just keeps saying sorry. This is a premium meme. Oh, oh, it's only available for Antifa gold members. Uh, oh yeah, here. Let me give you my. Let me look up my login real quick. I'm actually an Antifa platinum member. I pay six hundred and sixty six dollars a month back to George Soros after he sends me my four hundred and twenty dollar <laughs> a month check. So um, yeah, no, login yeah, is. Uh, I, I love, login I love is, this meme. Login is weed douche 420 password is password. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, it's, it's so good. Cause this is, it's just a, uh, the critique it, on, it's, it's just the 4chan meme. It's just, yeah. sorry, you need a 4chan gold membership to see this post, but it's for oh, yeah. fucking Antifa memes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did see the FBI uh, directors say that Antifa is an ideology and not an organization, which is maybe the, <laughs> only like not entirely brain dead thing that the in- intelligence agency has done recently. Well, it seems like the FBI is kind of, I, I mentioned this on an episode of BP recently. It seems like the FBI and the CIA are kind of feuding right now. So once in a while they might say seemingly rational things just to contradict what the other agency is saying. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, but anyway, that's going to be the end of our meme review. Uh, if you want to give us a review on Apple Podcasts, make sure it's a five-star review. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice work. Uh, uh, give, support us on uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash workstoppage if you uh, want to get an additional uh, episode. And also follow me at Solidarity Be on Twitter, John at Facebook villain, check out beep beep lettuce, um, as we've mentioned. And, uh, I guess, like I mentioned in the middle of the episode, we've got a discord now. So stop on over to the Patreon, even if you are not quite available to, uh, afford giving us $5 a month. Uh, there is a link for you to join our discord and, uh, let us know what you think about what we're doing here uh, or give us more suggestions as to what to talk about. Uh, Cause we're always here to engage in the community. Um, thank you all Absolutely. so much. And uh, we'll see you in the discord. Yeah. Stay safe out there. Oh yeah. I used to know Quinn and he's a real, he's a real jerky. <laughs> <laughs>